0: Welcome to the MedCore Podcast Network. I'm Mike Frattentura with RT Magazine. Today, we're going to be discussing the use of virtual reality as a training and education tool in healthcare. We're joined today by Dr. Brian S. Kaufman from New York University's Langone Health. Dr. Kaufman has been practicing internal medicine since 1980 and anesthesiology since 1988, and is currently a professor in the Department of Medicine, the Department of Anesthesiology, Perioperative Care, and Pain Medicine, and the Department of Neurosurgery at NYU Grossman School of Medicine. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Kaufman. Oh, it's my pleasure. So before we uh, get into the subject matter today, if you wouldn't mind telling us just a little bit more about your career in critical care, anesthesiology, and, and healthcare.
1: Yes, uh, I trained in internal medicine up in Albany Medical Center, and then did a two-year uh, critical care fellowship at the Ellis Hospital, which is a major affiliate of Albany Medical Center. I then uh, moved to Chicago to work with one of the founders of critical care medicine, Dr. Max Harry Weil, as a critical care physician. And after about two and a half years there, I came back to New York and did an anesthesiology uh, residency. Um, and I've been doing full-time critical care for the last 35 years or so. I've been involved in medical education for uh, that duration as well, but became very interested in simulation-based education about 15 years ago uh, and spent uh, 25% of my time developing a a simulation education center at the VA hospital in New York Harbor, which is in Manhattan, uh, focusing primarily on uh, advanced education for critical care physicians, physician assistants, uh, anyone involved with acute care. Um, And it was through that I became involved with the American College of Chest Physicians as part of their difficult airway, uh, simulation management group. Uh, and they have put on courses, uh, over for more than a decade, not only at their headquarters in Northbrook, Illinois, north of Chicago, but also at their annual meeting. And it was through them uh, that I got involved in teaching difficult airway management. Uh, I also have been involved with the uh, SimLearn, which is the National VA Simulation Center that's based in Orlando, uh, teaching difficult airway management uh, with that group. Um, And because of uh, the interest of one of my uh, former uh, fellows, Uh, Dr. Ali Hafiz, I became interested in virtual reality, uh, even at my age. And so we uh, started getting involved with that initially with uh, advanced cardiac life support program, uh, teaching leadership skills, uh, but then uh, when we heard that uh, the American College of Test Physicians was getting interested in doing developing VR programming to teach uh, difficult area management, we reached out and uh, have been involved with them since basically inception of their virtual reality uh, development program. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the CHESS program and your study that um, you
0: presented at the their meeting last fall. But before we get to that, obviously, you mentioned um, simulation education. So we're here to talk about virtual reality. You mentioned that, too. Um, so before we introduce VR, could you talk a little bit about some of the traditional uh, critical care simulation and training? I think we all picture a small group of three to four RTs or RNs in a room with a lead instructor, you know, some airway management tools and like a simulation mannequin. Is that mannequin? Is that the typical setup?
1: Well, we do it uh, a couple different ways. But uh, we usually have a, a mannequin going. We happen to use the Laerdal Simman. Uh, we have a scenario. Uh, a team response, which might be two, three, or four people. It's sometimes multidisciplinary uh, with respiratory therapy and nursing and critical care fellows or faculty, and sometimes it's just critical care faculty. Um, And then they have to assess what's going on, look at the vital signs, decide how they want to manage the the, the, the simulated patient. And we have a, a, a whole slew of difficult airway tools. I like to say we have more difficult airway tools than any of our hospitals. Um, and so uh, they have to utilize the, the correct tool in the in correct way. We also uh, will follow that up with using uh, task trainers, which is just like a head and a chest. Um, but we have various models, uh, some with extremely difficult airways. Uh, the mannequin, when we do it, you can blow up the tongue, you can give it trismus, you can do a surgical airway, but we have test trainers, for example, uh, that have a, a burnt airway that's very realistic and very difficult uh, to to intubate. And then we have screen-based uh Uh, virtual reality programs uh, for teaching uh, difficult intubations with various distorted airways, various masses, Um, and they utilize that primarily to teach our anesthesiology residents and our senior critical care people how to intubate using a bronchoscope, a simulated bronchoscope. So,
0: uh, you know, the in-person model is sort of the the standard go-to, but obviously if we rewind to early 2020, the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, like how did COVID disrupt that in-person training
1: model? So let me let me talk a little bit about uh, the American College of physicians Physicians uh, training programs. Uh, the traditional program uh, is a three-day intensive simulation-based program. Uh, we have developed a an algorithm, a cognitive aid, uh, to teach the learners. The learners can be Critical care physicians, pulmonologists, hospitalists, respiratory therapists, uh, residents is a very uh, mixed group. Um, and basically, uh, they go through a whole series of scenarios using the mannequin. We go through uh, uh, practicing and all the different task trainers, uh, um, but it's really focusing on teaching how to make everything safe for these difficult intubations. Um, as opposed to the operating room, where the vast majority of patients are, Relatively easy intubations. Uh, the anesthesiologist has time to get a history, do a full examination, get extra studies if necessary, get all the equipment there. Um, in the ICU and also in the emergency room, when someone needs to be intubated, they're automatically what we call the physiologically difficult airway. They're tachycardic, they're hypotensive, they're hypoxemic. So it's very risky to just go ahead and intubate that patient, just like you might do with a healthy patient in the operating room. So we're, we teach using this um, this aid that's called the approach. Um, and we spend a lot of time making sure all the learners are able to understand and memorize the steps uh, with the approach and, and then that cognitive aid is something they can put on their phone. Um, so virtual real, so virtual reality uh, is a great way of learning all the steps up to the actual, task of using a laryngoscope and putting a tube in. And it's also very good in teaching what to do after the tube is in. Um, but it's not very good in teaching the physical steps of actually doing the laryngoscopy and putting the tube in. But since the concept here is that if you can get the saturation up to a reasonable level by two-person bagging or putting an oral or nasal airway in or using an LMA or putting a peep valve on the AMBU bag so that when you start the intubation process, the Stats are in the mid-90s or higher, uh, and if you treat the hypotension with fluids and or vasopressors before you start the process, the chances of having a significant adverse event are markedly lower. So so the virtual reality is we find is an excellent way for covering those materials. The in-person uh, practicing the intubation, uh, even with mannequins, it's not a substitute for actually intubating patients, whether that's in the operating room under the supervision of an anesthesiologist or in the ICU under the supervision of of anyone who's in charge of doing intubations. Um, I don't think at this point, and probably not for many years, will virtual reality uh, be an adequate substitute for that in-person experience
0: was it a benefit though during the, you know the covid pandemic as in not being able to be in person training and you know oh, and and needing to maintain social distancing and things like that
1: well the, the there's a couple of problems with the in person um it's very labor intensive for the instructors okay um all the learn so you cannot do more than we we did up to about 30 individuals and you needed one faculty member for every four or five participants. They had to fly to a central location, which happens to be Chicago for the American College of Chest Physicians, happens to be in Orlando for the uh, VA system. Okay. Uh, you have to pay for the flights, for the airfare, for uh, someone covering them when they're out of work. So it's a very expensive endeavor and is very limited in terms of numbers. With virtual reality, um, people can do it in their own institution. they Could do it from home. They can be anywhere in the world. Uh, And so there's no transit costs and they can do it after hours or during their lunch break. Uh, So the costs are uh, much lower and the number of people who can participate uh, is much higher.
0: So we were going to talk a little bit about the study that you and your team worked on um, last fall with the CHEST um, uh, program. Um but if you could tell us a little bit about the actual technology that you used what was what was the setup like what were the hardware um you know aspects of it and not only that the software and connectivity and things like that Sure.
1: So this this was a, a, a program uh that was sponsored by the American College of Chess Physicians uh, partnering with a, a medical virtual reality development company that was based in that's based in Toronto called Lametto. Um, and we were one of three centers that helped develop, uh, the virtual reality uh, experience. We didn't do the 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 um, development of it. That was by the uh, virtual reality company, uh, but we. Uh, reviewed uh, what was being developed multiple times uh, we have you know almost weekly meetings would say you know what the monitor needs to be a little bit higher you have to have the entitled co2 more visible or the bed has to be able to be elevated or the headboard needs to be removed and so each each iteration uh, uh, there were steady improvements and it, it happened very quickly in terms of the improvements Uh, Lamento also developed a a physiology engine so that uh, the vital signs would change in a realistic manner as as the case evolved. And if something didn't uh, evolve the way we thought it, would our group, the Difficult Airway uh, Simulation Group, with some other people who had semi-retired from the group, like myself, uh, would give them feedback and Lametta would, would fix the issue? So after we went through all this beta testing, uh, we had three sites for the pilot testing, uh, ourselves at NYU and the VA in Manhattan, uh, Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, and Bowman Gray in uh, North Carolina. Um, and the way we did it here is we would have three learners that were mostly um, critical care fellows. But we had some faculty, we had some residents. I think at Bowman Gray, they had a medical student, addition and respiratory therapist was heavily involved in the development of the process as well. So we would have Three of our uh, volunteers, it was a uh, controlled study and they had to give consent, um, and the three learners were in three separate rooms and they were wearing a Oculus uh, headset, which is a non-tethered, uh, meaning it's not hooked up by wires, uh, headset. Um, these three individuals could have been in three uh, different hospitals. They could be in three different countries. It's kind of irrelevant. Um, we used a hotspot, so we would have no connectivity issues, which is often a problem in hospitals. Um, and uh, the faculty, myself and Dr. Heifis, uh would sit in a room, in the same room we're in now, and we would watch on a computer uh, what the three learners were doing. So, even though the learners were in different rooms, once the headset was on and we turned the program on, they were physically uh, immersed in one room together. And they could see the other two learners at the same time. They would see the patient, they would see the vital signs. And we would have one of the learners be identified as the airway manager or leader for this particular um, case. Um, and they would be told a brief history. We used a physiologically difficult airway. Who, who a person with uh, alcoholism, alcohol withdrawal, agitation. Who uh, was desaturated? So they had to work together to get the saturation to a reasonable level. Basically, going through the approach uh, algorithm. Um, after the first case was done with successful intubation, we then would debrief and we would throw up on their uh, in their Oculus headset. So they could see uh, a summary of the approach algorithm, and we would go over A, which is the airway assessment. P is preparation. P is pre-oxygenation. The steps I mentioned before. R would be review the plan with the uh, team members so is on the same uh, wavelength. O is what we call an oxygen cutoff. In other words, determine ahead of time that if the saturation drops to this level, let's say eighty-eight percent. Okay, one of the three uh, individuals will be watching the oxygen saturation on the pulse oximeter tracing, and we say, okay, we're eighty-eight percent. We need to stop. And we have to resaturate the patient. So that's the O. A P P R O. A is medication administration. Administration. They had to know the dosing and and uh, okay, and then. After that, you would confirm that the tube is in. That's the C and H as you hold on to the tube until it's secured. So after they went through the first case, where they would make a significant number of mistakes most of the time, we would then go through the algorithm in that debriefing. And then uh, the leader would change, uh, but they would go through the same scenario a second time. Uh, They would almost always do much better. uh, And then we would debrief after that case. uh me as the instructor i see all of them in the same room i see all the vital signs uh and if necessary although we often didn't have to do that we could give them some instruction they're having some uh issue with the virtual reality program we could say maybe the tube is over on the on the desk to the right or something like that we could we could jump in if necessary um and the typical program ran uh, the two cases took no more than 25 to 30 minutes um, and in terms of the outcome of the study, first of all, we found that almost everybody could very quickly get used to the virtual reality uh, experience, even people with no prior virtual reality experience, even people who are older and less tech savvy. Number one, we did uh, assessments by pre and post tests We found that there was a significant increase in knowledge at the end, but that was mostly uh, found in the uh, less experienced learner. So, people have been doing area management for 10, 15 years uh, had a smaller improvement, uh, which is not surprising at all. So, and and in terms of comparing this mode of learning to other ways like PowerPoint lectures or uh, computer based simulation, um, the, the learners felt this was almost as good as doing a full scale uh, simulation on a mannequin. So, those were t- those two methods, this virtual reality experience. And the mannequin-based simulation, which really couldn't do much during COVID, uh, were almost equivalent in terms of of how the learners uh, stated how good it was and markedly better than all the other methods of learning.
0: So what was um, – you mentioned some of the outcomes, but what, what was their overall impressions of the technology? And not only that, have you, like, put the headset on? Have you been in the virtual environment? Like, how real and how – you know, uh, what's it what's it like? I know it's not great for audio, but we do have photos of it available on
1: our website, yeah, no, it's it's a it's a pretty realistic experience. Um, they are improving it uh, every day. I have also used other programs. Um, we are working with a different company uh, called Simex for uh, developing tracheostomy complications, which I think will have a huge impact. Um, we're very excited about it, but it's a very slow process in developing the cases. Um, there was a large study. Uh, done probably eight, nine years ago, called the NAP4, National Audit Project 4, in England. They basically looked at every airway that was managed in England and every hospital over a one-year period, uh, and they divided up between operating room and ICU-slash-ER intubations. And looking at the ICU-ER intubations, it turns out when they looked at life-threatening complications or death, more than half of them had nothing to do with the intubation, but rather were tracheostomy complications, like plugging or disconnection. So that aroused our interest in developing um, a virtual reality experience going through a series of, of of tracheostomy complication cases. So we've spent a lot of time developing these cases, and now with the cases are beginning to come into our hands, and we're going to compare. Learning with virtual reality versus a typical tabletop PowerPoint interactive discussion, uh, and then call the learners in two different groups: those that learn traditionally, those that learn with the VR, to manage a series of cases using uh, some new task trainers we're developing to see how they do with these uh, potential life-threatening complications. So, um. With that, I know uh, lamento is working on similar technology. For example, if you pick up a stethoscope and put it in your ears and then listen over the lung or the heart, you will hear real breath sounds or real heart sounds, and we can put in different findings. We can put in wheezing or unilateral loss of breath sounds or different cardiac sounds. If you pick up an ultrasound probe and you put it over the lung, you can look at different types of lung uh, ultrasound findings based on the type of case. If you feel with your hand in your handset the pulse, you'll feel a pulse. Um, You look at the ventilator, and this is true now with Lometo as well, you can see all the tracings, the inspiratory pressure, the expiratory pressure. So there's a a huge amount of, of stuff that can be done now with Reality, um, but each one takes time, and the, and these the, the things are not uh, inexpensive to develop. But once they're developed, you can use them very
0: cheaply. So, this is obviously a novel technology and a novel approach to, to simulation education. But do you think this is something that'll like catch on quickly across the industry? <laughs>
1: I think it's going to catch on quickly because there are, in terms of education, because there are things you can do with virtual reality that are very difficult to do with mannequin based simulation. For example, a neurologic exam, even the most advanced mannequins cannot do a very good neurologic exam, whereas in virtual reality, you can say, you can talk to the patient and the patient can talk back to you uh, and you can say, move your right arm, move your left arm, open your eyes, turn to the left, turn to the right, right? Um, Touch your finger to your nose, and you, that can only be done in virtual reality, and it looks very realistic. Where you can't do that with the mannequins at all. So there, there are many things again you can do with virtual reality you can't do with the with the mannequins. Like as I said, with, with the ultrasound findings. <laughs>
0: So uh, for our audience who are listening, obviously most of them probably don't have this this technology available to them. But if they're interested in getting involved in like a study or a trial or something like that, what might that process look like? And any advice you can share from your um, department's experience with the technology and getting involved with it?
1: Um, I can tell you that people try it. Most of them love it. There's a very small percentage, I would say less than 5% who just can't tolerate it. So you have to have other ways to educate them. They may feel nauseous or they, they'll tell you ahead of time, I, I can't I can't do it. So and you can you can't have more than a 20, 25 minute experience for most people. Um, but the technology is now very expensive. The headsets like the oculus, Headset that we utilize so is now about $300. So it's basically, um, if you're interested in this program, you can reach out to the American College of Test Physicians, let them know you're interested, um, and I don't know the model, the pricing model, but, you know, this is something that you could uh, potentially obtain for your institution and go through these cases. And as as they're saying, as I'm saying, this is still in development, but, you know, they're going to hopefully have a whole series of cases and you can go through this program with your Respiratory therapists, your intensivist, your pulmonologist at your institution uh, and, and, and will almost certainly save a lot of money and go through a very uh, similar experience that you would do uh, if you went to the chest headquarters in Northbrook.
0: Thanks, Dr. Kaufman, for your time today. So if any of our listeners are interested in more about virtual reality and healthcare, we recently published an article on www.rtmagazine.com that covers the topic in great detail, including some more info on the study that Dr. Kaufman was involved in, along with some other VR and augmented reality training platforms across the country. So please check out rtmagazine.com for the article. It'll be pinned to the top of the homepage for easy access. Uh, Thanks, Dr. Kaufman, for joining us today. You're welcome. Great. Thanks, everyone, for joining us also. We'll be back in a few weeks with a new episode. Thank you.